Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That sends the reading of God's word. Let's go before him now in prayer. Father, we... We are grateful that we're able to gather this evening in, in corporate worship to come before you in prayer to uh, hear the reading and preaching of your word. And we do now pray uh, that you would grant us the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we might take to heart these words that you have kept and preserved for your church. And Lord, that it would uh, do a work in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are some dangerous places in the world. Dangerous places. Uh, Just within the past month, I was uh, visiting with my in-laws and my father-in-law and I were were, uh, watching a couple different videos about mountain climbing uh, in the Himalayas. And it is just amazing what some people will go through to try to reach the summit of Mount Everest. The, the paths and the, the different approaches you have to take to try to summit that, summit that mountain is amazing and rather dangerous as well. And there was a, another gentleman that we watched who I believe he was in Greenland. And in Greenland, there are these uh, massive glaciers. And every once in a while, you'll come across a, uh, a point in the glacier where there is a waterfall just dumping loads and loads of water down into the glacier, and it bores this massive hole. And there was a, a group of a few men who what they would do is uh, hook up a harness, and they would lower themselves down to the bottom of that giant hole in the glacier, And then they would seek to climb up with nothing but special shoes and a pickaxe. And of course, yes, they they attempt to to string up safety harnesses so that if, if they fall, they don't fall to their death. But it is still extremely dangerous. Dangerous location to be when it comes to physical danger. Now, when we look at uh, this evening's text, Christ's letter to the church in Pergamum, we're going to see that the saints in Pergamum are in a very dangerous location as well. Now, yes, there's an aspect uh, to which the saints in Pergamum face physical danger, but at the same time, even much more so, they face spiritual 
danger. They face spiritual danger. And the, the doctrine or the, the main point I want to make sure that we, we get from this text this evening is this, that Christ calls His people to live faithfully in dangerous places. Christ calls His people to live faithfully in dangerous places. And the, the text can be divided into uh, roughly three different sections. Verses 12 through 13, we have a dangerous location. Verses 14 to 16, we've got a dangerous teaching. And then verse 17 of chapter 2, we have a delightful promise. So a dangerous location, dangerous teaching, and a delightful promise. We'll look first at verses 12 through 13 with a dangerous location. Now, this letter follows the the same general structure that we've seen in the other letters uh, to the churches in Revelation. It is the risen Christ who is uh, calling for a letter to be written to these individual churches. We've looked at Ephesus, we've looked at Smyrna, and Pergamum is next along the the delivery location, the delivery list. The, uh, The letter carrier would come from the island of Patmos, they would first go to Ephesus, They can go to Smyrna. Now they're coming to Pergamum. And in each of these letters, we have in the initial verse, the risen Christ identifying a specific attribute about Himself that was seen earlier on in chapter 1. And here, we have the description of Christ as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, sometimes in Scripture, the sword is, is seen as a, a picture of power, the ability to, to take away life or to defend, such as in Paul's letter to the Romans when he talks about how those who are in positions of authority don't bear the sword in vain. Here it would refer to Christ's power and ability to either wage war or to defend and that would have been a great encouragement to the, to the saints in Pergamum because, yes, Rome has the sword, but the risen Christ, the one who is exalted above all, He too is the one with the double-edged sword. And we find out in these first two verses that Christ has uh, knowledge of this church. First, he, he knows where they live. He knows where they live. I know where you live, you who dwell, or where you dwell, verse 13. They dwell in Pergamum, and it's likely that the majority of these saints, they have lived there for the, the bulk of their life, perhaps, perhaps their entire life. And uh, you know, even today, there's some people where they've lived in the same location their entire life. There, there's a great benefit to that. There's other people who have, have moved all around. Uh, typically, perhaps you've asked me before, where am I from? And I just say, lots of places, because I don't want to list off where I have lived. But it's likely that the saints here have lived in Pergamum for a long time. This is the station in life where God has assigned them. He has called them to be faithful in this particular location. And yet, it is a dangerous location. If you look at verse 13... I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Now, there's a lot of discussion over exactly what that means, but whatever it means, that does not sound good. To live where Satan's throne is. And it would appear that Satan's throne points to the fact that the uh, saints in Pergamum are living in a location where there is a lot of idolatry taking place, and particularly emperor worship, where the emperor in the first century would require his subjects to call him both God and Lord, both Lord and God. And one commentator pointed out that Pergamum was the center for emperor worship for the whole province. So idolatry was running rampant in the city of Pergamum. And anywhere where you have idolatry running rampant, that is where Satan has a tight grip, where there are satanic influences that have a tight grip upon the community. And that's where these saints live. At Satan's throne. At a place full of idolatry. That is where God has placed them and called them to be faithful. The Romans would be expecting that these Christians would say that Caesar is Lord, and yet they would say, we cannot confess that. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. He knows where they live. He knows what they have done. If you look with me in the text in verse 13, he says, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. We can ask ourselves, how is it that you hold fast to a name? Well, you can do so in two different ways. You can hold fast to the name of Christ in doctrine and in practice. What would that look like? Well, if the, the culture is ra- around you is telling you uh, there's, there's many different gods, there's many different ways to uh, make yourself right with these many gods, There's many uh, different uh, truths. There's many different ways to go to heaven. If you're holding fast to the name, you reject that and you hold on to what God has revealed in His Word. You hold on to what Christ has revealed. In practice, when the culture around you is saying, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do with your time. This morning we were exhorted that Sunday is the Lord's day. The world does not believe that. And so holding fast to the name would be rejecting that and standing fast on God's Word. And it seems that that is exactly what this man in the first century named Antipas did. When he was faced with a choice between obeying God and denying his faith and confessing Caesar as Lord... He said, I would rather serve God and die than deny Him. And he was killed in their midst. I think it would very much disturb us if a beloved member within our church was not only physically persecuted, but killed because of their faithfulness to Christ. It would be very unsettling. Christ knows what this church is going through. He's pleased with the part of the church that is being faithful, that is holding on to 
the teaching that has been delivered to them. He's pleased with that. So with that, we'll turn from a dangerous location to a dangerous teaching, verses 14 through 15. While there are some in the church who are holding fast, who are not loving their life even to death, that's not the case with everyone. If you look in verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Some. Now note that this is not the whole church. This is not the whole church, but whereas the church in Ephesus was commended for their uh, holding fast to apostolic doctrine and they were rebuked for their lack of love, it's kind of the opposite here in Pergamum. What's happening is uh, apostolic doctrine is sliding and there's, there's tolerance of different teachings, tolerance of, of different viewpoints that contradict the Scriptures. And they're holding fast to, it's identified as the teaching of Balaam, but also the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And it seems that these two are extremely similar, perhaps even identical. Now most of us are familiar with Balaam in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 25 of the book of Numbers. And the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, By God's mighty and outstretched arm, they were led throughout the wilderness. And in Numbers 22, we read about how Israel is uh, in the wilderness. They are on the plains of Moab, and Balak, the king of Moab, wants Balaam to curse the Israelites. He wants him to curse the Israelites. And it turns out that Balaam can't do it. Balaam is, is not permitted to, uh, to curse these Israelites, but rather every time he attempts to do it, it seems that he calls down a blessing upon the Israelites. And that stands out to me, that the Israelites were, were shielded, that they were protected from this curse falling upon them. And yet, if you know the narrative, what is so detrimental to their existence is not the external forces, the external curses that are being called down upon them, but rather it is the corrosiveness of sin that eats them out from the inside. Different uh, Moabite women are called upon to walk before the Israelites, and it ends up with the Israelites engaging in both sexual immorality and idolatry. And if you recall, thousands die in a plague as the wrath of God burns against them. Numbers 31, 15-16, Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Peter is also very familiar with this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. And it appears that this teaching of the Nicolaitans, which also occurred in the letter to Ephesus, has to deal with sexual immorality and idolatry. 
sexual immorality and idolatry. And if you recall from the letter to the Ephesians, Christ said that he hates the works and the teachings of Nicolaitans. He hates it. It stands against everything that he is calling his church to be. He hates it and he is now calling the church in Pergamum also to hate it, to stand against it, to repent of it, to turn away and to fully remove it from their midst. Does this flavor of of false teaching exist today? Idolatry and sexual immorality? Oh yes. Yes, and it seems that there is just a, a flood of false teaching, particularly regarding sexual immorality, although we we know they'll always be found going hand in hand. Idolatry and sexual immorality. And so what I, I would submit to you that you too, living in Clinton, Mississippi, live in a dangerous place. You live in a dangerous location. Maybe not physically. Perhaps we don't have to worry about people uh, coming in and harming us as we worship. And yet, it is a dangerous place spiritually. There was an older writer named uh, William Gurnall who wrote concerning the war between the saint and Satan. And he said, And that so bloody a one that the cruelest that is, the cruelest war which was ever fought by men will be found but sport and child's play to this. Alas, what is the killing of bodies to the destroying of souls? What he's saying is, if you truly take to heart the spiritual warfare that we are in, take the the bloodiest war, the worst and most terrible war you can think of in history, Take all the horrors and the terrors of war and then compare it to the war that is currently being waged spiritually and it'll make it look like child's play. It'll make it look like child's play. And Christ takes this very seriously. He calls them to repent. Before the church can experience blessing, the repentance must take place. And this would, of course, also be a a direct uh, summons to the leadership of the church that they would not allow this to remain amongst its members. They must repent. Christ is telling His church, you can have Me or you can have your sin. You cannot have both. You cannot have both. They must acknowledge that what God teaches is right The false teaching is wrong and make a full resolve after new obedience. And so with that, we'll turn to our third and final point, the delightful promise in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now with Both of these, there has been a great deal written. There's been a great deal of of debate over exactly what these are. When you're dealing with the text of Revelation, uh, it's it's difficult to be entirely certain and pin things down. But I believe that with both of these promises, 
They are here to encourage the believers to hope and assurance as they are in this dangerous location. With regard to the hidden manna, in the Old Testament, manna was given to the children of Israel as they made their way throughout the wilderness. It was God's provision for them when they were lacking sustenance, and He provided for them all the way until they made it into the promised land. They did not starve. And the New Testament clearly brings out in John chapter 6, verses 32 through 35, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So it may be that Christ's promise here to the one who conquers, the one who is faithful unto death, is that what will the the conquering believer receive? Christ Himself and all His benefits. What a, what a, a blessing that these believers would receive. There is nothing better. The white stone... This may be similar to the stones which were on the high priest garments as they would go into the uh, Holy of Holies. They would have the 12 stones of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel and they would go in to the Holy of Holies. And yet it may be that the stone with the believer's name is now with Christ who brings the believer into the presence of the Father. Uh, Dr. Douglas Kelly in his commentary on Revelation, which I would highly recommend, says the following. It seems that God is saying something like this. I'm going to add a new stone to the high priest's breastplate. Not the Jewish high priest now, but the high priest, the great high priest in heaven. I'm going to put your name on a personalized stone that Jesus takes in to the Father. With both of these promises, they intend to give believers greater hope and assurance as they cling to Christ and live faithfully in dangerous places. Let me now close with two points of, of application drawn from this text. The first would be that we ought to be diligent in praying for the purity of the church. The purity of the church. We live in a dangerous place, and yet we are called to be a faithful church in both doctrine and in practice. And we need to be asking the Lord that He would send His Spirit to be among us to not only invigorate us to to be a faithful witness in the community, but also that we would be purified. That we would be purified. Recognizing that though it is a dangerous place that we live, This is the station in life where God has placed us. Whether you've lived here your whole life or whether you've only lived here for a little bit, right now God has placed you here in this particular church and He's calling you to be faithful even in a dangerous time. Secondly, do not forget who is upon the throne. One commentator points out that there are 42 occurrences of the word throne in the book of Revelation. Twice it refers to an evil throne. 
Once here in chapter 2, it refers to the throne of Satan. In chapter 16, we have throne related to the beast. That leaves 40 more occurrences of the word throne. Whose throne do you think that is? That is God's throne. We know that Christ has ascended into the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He reigns and He is a wise ruler. He knows exactly what He is doing. And that is one of the benefits of the book of Revelation. That it peels back the veil and allows us to see God knows exactly what He's doing. Christ knows exactly what He's doing. And He will see to it that everything is done for the benefit of His church and the glory of God. So when it seems that everything is spinning out of control when we live in this dangerous place, do not forget the One who sits upon the throne. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank You that You have set Your King on Mount Zion. And Lord, though the nations rage, although the peoples plot in vain, O Father, He will see to it that the kingdom is is built. And Lord, we pray that we would be uh, faithful in the station in life where You have us. Lord, that we would look to You with trust. And Lord, that You would indeed make us a people who are crying out for purity, for the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might live out and fulfill the tasks that you have called each and every one of us to. We thank you so much. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.